0: This is the ASE Podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pay, Yale School of Medicine. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASC is impacting surgical education globally.
1: Today's topic is a really interesting one, it's about learning sciences, and I'm really grateful and excited to have Dr. Sarah Sullivan from the University of of Wisconsin, the Department of Surgery. Uh, Dr. Sullivan is currently Faculty Associate in Research and Development and obtained her Ph.D. in Educational Psychology with a focus on learning sciences. She's published in Communications and Non-Technical Skill Deficits and Trainees, and uh, a part of which I'm going to ask you about a little bit later there, Dr. Solomon, about um, the non-technical assessments and in, in your trauma. That was really, really interesting to me. And uh, She's also very active in the Association for Surgical Education and recently presented a workshop on education research methodology at our annual meeting in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me, Dr. Pei.
1: Well so let's get right into it. You know, when you when we were talking about your expertise in research methodology and you had mentioned this concept of learning sciences, I have to be quite honest. I was thinking to myself, well what what exactly is learning sciences? So maybe you can give us our our audience a brief introduction to what, what it means when you're talking about learning sciences.
2: Sure, yeah, I'm happy to give um, kind of a a very brief background um, of it. So as you mentioned, my uh, PhD is in educational psychology uh, with a focus in learning sciences. Um, So learning sciences essentially is the study of learning environments and um, taking different approaches to the study of how to make them most effective, how to understand the needs of learners with different backgrounds and characteristics, um, how the uh, the sociocultural environment um, is affecting the learning that's going on and, and really trying to take all of those different pieces into consideration when we're thinking about um, the overall effectiveness of, of the learning that's going on in any situation. And so the thing that I actually love about um, the learning sciences and its approach and perspective is that it's, it's very much interdisciplinary. So um, there's a wide range of people who may um, do research or work in this area or call themselves learning scientists. Um, so it can include perspectives from psychology, computer science, um, anthropology, sociology, um, neuroscience, education. Um, just to name a few, and so it really provides um, a way to holistically study um, the learning that 's taking place in in various situations and environments
1: so you know i really i 'm really intrigued by this idea that uh, you 're studying learning as it happens and it sounds like uh, correct me if i 'm wrong, but it sounds like that you uh, as an education psychologist and a learning scientist, are in the actual learning environment and and you're actually in the thick of it all. Is that is that uh, a correct interpretation?
2: Yeah, yes, um, that's very true. So, you know, another thing I think that makes this field um, uh, unique and effective is the idea that, you know, you're looking at things like um, learning outcomes, right, are, are people actually mm. learning. But you're also looking at things like, well, what works, for whom, and under what conditions, right? And so a big part of what we're doing um, and, and what, you know, my fellow learning scientists do in, you know, in all sorts of different educational environments, so K-12, through informal learning environments, and also um, medical education, is look at that learning process, right? What's taking place? Right. How are people learning? How, again, is the context or the way in which we... Um, are approaching learning in particular situations? How is that affecting the learner? And how can we um, how can we tailor and adapt um, what's going on for learners with particular um, needs or particular backgrounds, right? And so that's something I actually really love about it. and I think, um, makes it particularly well-suited to medical education, which, as we know, is a very um, complex learning environment with a lot of different learners um, at different levels. Uh, you may have, you know, I'm just thinking of, of even a case in the OR, right? You may have a medical student, um, a resident, maybe two, who are at different different levels in on their career path, and then potentially a fellow, right? And you have to think about, well, how do I... Um, In addition to taking into consideration um, the patient, obviously, since patient safety is the priority, um, how do I educate um, and provide a learning experience for all of these different um, learners? And the nice thing is that by using different methods, um, particularly qualitative methods, which the learning sciences uses a lot of, we could go in and actually look, well, what's going on here? Right, and how might we um, effectively target learners who are at different stages, depending on what it is we want them to get out of a particular learning experience?
1: And that's a great uh, segue to what, what I was going to get into next, which is about the methodology. It sounds really messy, and it's, it, and it's in, <laughs> in a good way in that in the complexity of education. And I, I um, can you give us an example of how you might do this study? Because it's so important, and I think it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question and you're right. I mean it is, you know, it is messy. Um it's messy in the sense that, you know, we're we're working with with people first and foremost, right? And you know, we know that right. we can make some predictions about um behavior, um, but you know, sometimes sometimes we, we surprise each other, right? And we don't we don't right. behave in, in ways that are necessarily predictable. Um and then, you know, secondly, um, it's complex due to, as we were just talking about, the the complexity of of the learning environment in which things are, are taking place. Um, so I think, uh, just to to maybe talk about, um, you know, an example or two of, you know, how we might go about doing some some systematic study or you know making some predictions about what might happen um in a in a particular learning environment um, so one thing um that i know uh is is being focused on um uh in surgery but also in in medical education at the the broader scale are is um issues around um things like Clinical reasoning, right? And so, right. Um, as we think about, you know, at when we're we're in the OR, right, we need to have the um, the procedural knowledge and the technical skill, right? We need to have that. But then we also need to have um, the ability to um, reason about well, what what happens next um, if something isn't going, you know, the way that I I um, am thinking it should or that I was thinking it would go. What do I right. do? How make those decisions about um, you know, what to do going forward. So I think um, one way that, that we could approach this that might help to break it down is to um, think about, well, what are the different areas in which we might gain some insight into that process of clinical reasoning, right? And I would argue that potentially, um, the OR, you know, in, in the moment um, with, with a, an actual patient is not necessarily the best place to gain insight into that clinical reasoning. So, we might start out with something like um, simulation. So, using um, something like a virtual patient, right, or a virtual patient case um, to get people to reason through and actually think aloud and talk about. Okay, if, if this were to happen in this situation, um, here are the things I would be thinking about, right, And here are the decisions that I might make because and and there's work out there that that ha, has been been doing things like this to try to better understand you know, out of the the, the time um, and clinical pressured environment of the OR or um, can we gain some insight into um, how people are reasoning about the decisions that they're making? And then once we're able to kind of um, gain some insight into that, potentially form some, um, you know, a a taxonomy of, um, well, here are the things that people usually consider when they're making clinical decisions, then we can take that and sort of have a, a theoretical perspective for, um, things that we're seeing in the operating room, right? And so even if um, people aren't able to vocalize them, um, can we collect uh, other forms of data that gives us evidence as to, you know, what um, uh, what is the information that people were taking in to, tr- to uh, make decisions in this clinical environment? So there have been studies, um, and there's starting to be more, that have used things like eye tracking, right, to, to better understand. Yeah what people are actually looking at um, right before they they do something, right? So presumably then you can make some um, uh, inferences about what they were taking in um, in terms of information before they, they made those decisions, right? And so I guess my point is I think um, as we explore these things, it's sort of an iterative process that happens mm-hmm. across multiple environments to allow us to get a, a good foundation of what's going on and then once we have that foundation, right, we can use this information to actually make decisions about designing our learning environments and designing um, instructional um, techniques um, or programs that will, you know, really target the areas that we know learners struggle with as they develop expertise right? Because in medical education, I mean, if you think about it, really the focus is on developing um, from a novice to an expert, right? And, right. and the right. Course of course, your training, you're, you know, I mean, we're all lifelong learners, right? We never get to this level of expertise where there's never anything for us to learn. But really, you know, the, the goal um uh, for a lot of our trainees is, is to get them to a place where they're competent and they're safe and they're ready to go out and, and make some decisions um, in their own practice, right? And so right. to think about the trajectory of how we do that and how um, different methodological uh, and theoretical perspectives can help us to make our learning environments more efficient, um, I think right. is really
1: right and it's 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 an sort of incredibly important uh goal and outcome of interest and I you know with the as as I was doing the background in preparation for our uh, chat today, I came across a lot of discussion of theories and education theories, and I got a little lost in terms of it, because what what you're describing sounds like a really practical approach to looking at the learning environment. Um, in a novel but practical way. How do we affect it? How do we change it? And yet a lot of the discussion surrounding it seems to be discussing about learning theory. So my I guess my question would be, are you, as a learning scientist, reformulating educational theories, or are you sort of just being as practical as possible and trying to come up with solutions to best enhance that learning environment?
2: You know, I, I think it's about... Um, I think there's um, a component of of theory development, um, yeah. but then there also is that that practicality component that you're talking about. Um, you know, and I, I think um, it really comes down to what your goals are um, in the work that you're doing, and whether there's a theory out there. That is already well established that can inform um, your your work in a, a particular domain versus right. okay, we don't really have a theory that completely fits what we're trying to do. Um, and so then it's a process of kind of borrowing um, maybe bits and pieces from um, certain perspective and try- perspectives and trying to really come up with okay what's a what's a theory that's um informative for our approach um so to give just an example of that right to if we want to go back to our our clinical reasoning um that we were just talking about and thinking about the cognitive processes that go into that so there's um Anderson's adaptive character of thought theory it's called the actor theory um and essentially what it boils down to is that um things like clinical reasoning diagnostic Uh, diagnosis, decision making um, are uh, kind of an interaction between two different types of knowledge. So procedural knowledge, how to do something, and then um, uh, declarative knowledge, what are facts. And so obviously to make um, clinical decisions, you need to have a good um, background of um, uh, clinical knowledge, but you also need to know Um, again, okay, in what situations is this knowledge relevant and appropriate? And then based on, you know, knowing what's going on, what should I do, that procedural Mm -hmm. knowledge, right? And so we can, um, as we're looking at how people are making clinical decisions, right, we can use that theory to kind of focus the things we look at, and we could target both their declarative knowledge, like do they actually know the facts, and their procedural knowledge. So if they're getting the facts right, do they know you know, when it's appropriate to do something, right? And so it kind of helps us to put into to buckets um, the things that they're doing as they make clinical decisions, and then we Mm -hmm. know better how to intervene, right? Is it an issue with their procedural knowledge? Is it an issue with their declarative knowledge, right? So, I mean, that's a little bit of an oversimplification of of clinical reasoning, certainly, but it does give us some guidance um, as to how to approach it rather than just coming in and saying, okay, well, what's going on here? What are people doing and how do we help them?
1: A lot of what you've been discussing sounds like it eventually ends up in the very popular topic nowadays uh, in in terms of assessment. And how does the learning sciences play into this field of, I mean, we have to at some point measure, I think, we have to measure how well our learners are doing. And, And you frequently brought up this concept of, well, if the end goal is to enhance their learning so that they become competent or an expert. We have to be able to measure that somehow. And how do you see learning sciences play into that assessment and evaluative process?
2: So definitely. Uh, and, and I feel, um, you know, at least for me, um, coming into medical education. So my, my previous work and my dissertation work was all in K through 12. And so stepping into the field of surgical education um, was a new realm for me uh e- even though clearly a lot of what i do um translates into this environment so I think yeah, a lot
1: a lot of people would argue we are kind of like kids in surgery <laughs> <laughs> so.
2: so i mean i i think that that that's one thing um that's one uh thing as i um as I entered this field, that I needed to kind of wrap my head around and 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 help people think about, um, and I, I still do this um, with my colleagues here in Wisconsin, and this is it's something that I really enjoy is actually thinking about um, almost like that like a backwards design perspective on um, developing a learning environment, right? And starting out with right. okay, what what is it that we Actually want our learners to be able to do or know or think or feel right like what is the goal of what we're doing right and from there I think it makes that assessment piece much easier um, the the learning environment design much easier because once you have your your goal in mind you can think about okay well what are the best ways to um to assess this, right? What what you know, what what data can I capture that is going to let me know that this trainee can do the things that I want them to do, right? So with technical right. skills, um, it may be a little more clear cut, right? Like right. um, you know, I, I want them to be able to do do this particular part of the procedure. And, and people have used various ways to look at technical skills. So there's work out there in, um, um, like, using uh, sensor technologies to look at what people are actually doing with their hands. Um, Dr. Carla Pugh does a lot of this, as well as others who are getting into looking at the technical aspects of how is our, our body actually moving um, as yep. we perform these things. But then, you know, it, it, as you think about the other things that we would want people to know, again, that clinical reasoning component, that teamwork component, the ability to work um, in an interdisciplinary environment, right, I think that those are areas that are more difficult to objectively quantify. But again, people have, have done work in this um in medicine. So Susan Steineman with the you know the T notex, thinking about the trauma, that's something that we've used in, in our work, right? Like trying to right. um sort of articulate and quantify, well what does this look like? Right? But I think for me, again to bring it back, coming into medical education, it's it's very different than K through 12 in some ways in that, you know, in K through 12 there's, I mean, we have standardized assessments. You know, you can debate about the validity of those assessments and, you know, whether or not they're the best measure, but, you know, I I think um, in some ways we have much more objectified ways of articulating, well, here's what we want students to come out with. I don't think that that has existed to that extent in medical education, but I think that that's changing with things like the entrustable uh, professional activities that have come out, when, and many people have done um, work related to that for medical students, yep. um, residents, and fellows. So here in Wisconsin, we're actually part of the pilot uh, for the entrustable professional activities that is being sponsored by the American Board of Surgery to really kind of look at well what are the behaviors that we expect from our from our residents when they leave general surgery training? Like what what does it mean to be a general surgeon? And that was actually a question I had asked, you know, when I first started, I'm like, okay, what 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 do you expect someone to be able to do once they leave, and you know, it, I didn't really get necessarily a very clear answer on what that was, and I think you know, this is at least one approach, and there's others out there to sure. trying to actually articulate. The behaviors that are expected of people um, when they leave general surgery training. So to come back to the role of the learning sciences in that, then right, once we have those those behaviors and these skills that we want people to demonstrate, then we can back it up and say, okay, what what's the evidence for them being able to exhibit these things? Like, what would we Take as as evidence that would make us fairly confident that they are able to do these in a competent way. And then, right. once we have you know kind of established these metrics, then we can think about okay, let's go in and see how well people are doing the, these things. And if they're not doing it to the level that we would expect then we start thinking about things like like developing instructional programs or curricula or interventions to help them reach these points. Sure. I it's it's I feel like I'm giving an explanation that's kind of vague and I think, you know, partially because it it, it kind of is because it's going to depend on, you know, what the focus is of of what you're doing, but I Right. I can't stress the importance enough of really being able to objectify those outcomes and those behaviors and then trying to work from those to understand whether or not they're actually occurring and how might we we target those behaviors, particularly for, for learners that, that may be struggling with them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you're saying is so important because, one, I think there's common misperception that the work we do in education is not really science in other words it's not it, sometimes it's hard to get p value sometimes you, we don't get we don't get survival curves and so on and so forth so number one i think it really sets out the importance of uh objectively assessing and, and studying important concepts in education but also it sounds like this process is very goal oriented that there is an outcome of interest that we're trying to affect not just purely watching and describing right which is sometimes what I think people think we do in education is we just describe and we just see oh this is what's happening but you're really finding solutions through learning sciences
2: yes yes so um right just as you said it 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 definitely is a science there are outcomes that we're we're looking at and I think you know I, I feel like I think your comment is correct, but I also feel like that's changing, particularly as, you know, we develop large groups of people who are interested in medical education and, um, you know, in in surgical education. Um, I mean, the Association for Surgical Education, I know, has been a a great resource for me um, and a great uh, source of, of colleagues, you know, getting to meet people like you and others who are really passionate about education and surgery and and do look at it as a scientific practice, which it is, right? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Sarah, I read with fascination your um, very recent article in Surgery on this concept. It's completely foreign to me, so I've been dying to ask you about it, uh, and I wanted you to share with the audience about this concept of epistemic network analysis,
0: (laughs) <laughs> and
1: um just just so so the audience knows it's in uh, April the it's already an epub on surgery in April 2018 and the title is using epistemic network analysis to identify targets for educational interventions in trauma team communication and i you know, i'm not just interested in because i'm a trauma surgeon but it's just fascinating so can you can you give us a little back, background about this study and what you found
2: Sure, sure. Happy to. Um so epistemic network analysis was developed here actually at the University of Wisconsin um by Dr. David Chafer who um is also an educational psychologist um but who has a background in uh, actually a, a little bit in in medical education, um engineering and then um communications. So um his interest was really in okay, we have these very complex learning environments, but particularly in um, uh, professional environments, so things like medicine, engineering, um, and and things of that nature, we have the development of um, what he refers to as epistemic frames. And so our epistemic frame is really the way in which we see the world right and if you think about practitioners it's it's the the frame from which they approach the work that they do so as an educational psychologist i have a particular lens through which i see the world and the work that i'm doing in education right which we're talking about today as a surgeon right you have a particular way that you see the work that you do, you see the world as you're working with patients, and then, you know, it's even more specialized in terms of your work as a trauma surgeon, right? And how you think about and how you approach things. And so, um, Dr. Schaefer's thought was really that, you know, we we don't necessarily understand those as well as we should as we're trying to help people develop expertise in these areas. How can we really help people who are trying to become um, surgeons, for example, understand the kinds of things that surgeons think about, that they pay attention to, and the way that they think about them as they're making decisions? And so,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, that was kind of the uh, a short <laughs> description of the the background background for this um, idea of epistemic frames. So. Within that, then you you can think about the network, the network of things that they that professionals are going to attend to, or to think about, or pay attention to. As, as um, an educational psychologist, for example, I pay attention to things like theory. Right? What's the theoretical perspective that someone is approaching something from? Right. How- does their perspective link to their intervention design or their study design, things like that. And so the idea behind epistemic network analysis is to try to, um, it's, it's essentially a way to analyze, um, well, you can use it with multiple forms of, of data, but it, it's trying to look at what are the important things that are occurring in dialogue potentially, so we use it with trauma resuscitation teams in a simulated scenario. They right. used it to look at conversations among engineers and people who are um, doing things like urban planning. But what are the things that come up as being important components of what people attend to or consider as they're um, they're doing their work? And then not only, right, what is what is happening, right, because we can say, well, this happened so many times and this happened so many times, but it, that doesn't really give us information about how these things interact. So right. what the epistemic network analysis does is it'll look at how things are co-occurring, right? How are they connected to each other within um, a learning environment or within um, something that's taking place? And then what is the importance of those connections and do we see difference in those connections in um, in people who are performing differently? So to take it back right. to uh, the trauma team example, right? We looked at trauma uh, resuscitation teams of, of trainees, so um, residents um, and then nurse trainees who um, were in the simulated environment and we looked at patterns in their communication in terms of how they were doing things like articulating information, asking questions, right? And we not only looked at what they did, but we looked at the connections between what they were doing. Found that teams that were articulating things and talking in in specific ways, Actually, seem to be related to how effective they were in providing treatment to the patient. So, you
1: that's know, really fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating.
2: I was just going to say, I'll put in a, I put in a, a plug for the article if, if you're interested in, in finding out more. You know, certainly we describe um, our analysis there and and some of our major findings. But I think, you know, people have said, well, why is it important to understand this? Well, I think it's important to understand this because it gets back to that whole idea we were talking about about. How do we objectify things, right? How do, we, sure. how do we concretely tell someone, okay, if you want to be, you know, a, 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 an effective trauma team leader, right, or an effective nurse in this environment, what is it that you should actually do? And this is helping us to, to figure out, okay, here are some concrete things that we can actually advise trauma resuscitation teams to do that may have impacts in the, the clinical realm.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it was really really fascinating read. I, I kept on I kept on searching more and more about um, this uh, epistemic network analysis concept, and uh, I'm going to figure out how to put a link onto our podcast site at the at the ASC website so that. Um, for those of you interested in audience, that you can click on it and, and go read Dr. Sullivan's uh, very interesting article about it recently. Sarah, we're going to come to a close here, but I, first of all, congratulations on all these really fascinating things. As with all of our other podcasts, I know that we oftentimes leave the audience with lots and lots of questions, and that's just probably a sign of a great expert. Um, but I hope that this discussion will have uh, stimulated interest in this concept of learning sciences, and maybe for our audience members to reach out to you and to see what they can learn from you and whether or not there are opportunities for collaboration.
2: Oh, that would that would be wonderful. I mean, yeah, you know, as you said, we've we've only really scratched the surface, and right. you know, I. I um, I agree. Like, I, I've only gotten to give a, a little bit of, of perspective on, you know, learning sciences and its role in medical education. And I just have to say, I certainly am not the the most expert person when it comes to this. I just want to make that clear. I've I've been doing this, you know, in surgical education for only four years now, and I've learned a lot, but... You know, there's others out there who are learning scientists. Uh, Dr. Emil Petruza is one that comes to mind who has been been doing this for a while and would also have some great insight. And coming back to the, the whole ASE community, um, yeah. it's, it's such, a, such a great resource. Um, and I think as educational psychologists, and learning scientists, but also, I mean, I know we have people in industrial and organizational psychology, cognitive psychology, you know, sociology who approach things in in different ways. Um, yes, I, I I would encourage um, anyone to to reach out to me or to others um, in the community who have a similar background, because I think, you know, I, I think that's one thing that ASE is working really hard to do is to kind of help us to to form these partnerships so that we can, we can do really strong research, but also um, design really strong learning environments. And I could not do any of that work without my um, collaborator, uh, Dr. Hisu Jung, who's a trauma and acute care surgeon here at Wisconsin. I mean, he mm-hmm. um, and others were really leading the, the trauma uh, simulation program before I got here. And then fortunately for me, I was able to come in as a collaborator and we were kind of able to take it to the next level in terms of learning sciences, applying some um, unique perspectives and approaches to it, you know, the epistemic network analysis and really kind of taking it to the next level. And I just think that surgical education, like there's so many people who care so much about it and who are doing such innovative things, and there's so much room for growth, particularly right now, and I think we're ready. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about what the next few years will bring.
1: Your passion and, and excitement for it is going to definitely be contagious. And I, as we um, close the podcast, for those who are interested in a career in surgical education, we would love to hear from you. Just a couple of tidbits about um, advice on, on how to how to succeed and what to do.
2: Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> okay. So one, find what interests you. So find that problem that you're like. Huh, you know, I I think I think this could be better. Right? I think this could be better and I'm really interested in how to to do that. Whether it's things like um, you know, preparation for the OR and, you know, how that influences the learning that takes place there, whether it's like feedback, um, whether it's clinical reasoning, um, you know, I know that these are, are things that, that people out there are are working on, but but find the thing that you're passionate about that you're like, I really want to solve this problem because that's what's going to sustain you um as you experience challenges, uh, right? Like a paper getting rejected, you know, trying to implement an intervention that doesn't work out running up against like red tape issues that that come up in in a learning environment such as a hospital right but if you have that like if you have that problem that you're like this is really important to me and I really want to work towards it and solve it that can sustain you through a lot um yeah. so I guess I would say that and the second would be to keep in mind kind of what you said that this is, it's a really complex environment. It's a messy environment, and we're not going to solve everything right away. Not everything is going to work, but one thing that I try to, to focus on as a um, surgical and med- medical educator are the differences that you make every day. Um, and I think that, you know, as particularly important for people who are, are teaching in the clinical environment um, and who have an educate, a program in surgical education, be it research-focused or not, right, is that sometimes right. it can be difficult to see the fruits of our labor, right? But yeah. if you think about, you know, all the individual interactions that you have with learners every day, and so maybe you're not making impact on a grand scale, but like, you know, maybe you... Got a medical student who never considered surgery really interested in surgery and considering it as a career right like that's a yeah that's awesome you know and so i I think for surgical educators, just thinking about you know not only what are you trying to do on a grander scale but what are the things that you do every day who are that are really um, really helping and impacting our learners
1: No that's really powerful and inspirational that was really well said. Dr. Sullivan, we are so grateful for your um, time and joining us, sharing with us your expertise in learning science. We are really all looking forward to what else um, you're going to be putting out with your colleagues from University of Wisconsin. And audience members, thanks for joining us. We are hoping that you will join us for our next ASC podcast. So stay tuned. Thanks, everybody. <music>
0: And that wraps up another edition of the ASE podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.